my mission to end the silence, the stigma, and the shame about suicide. Please join me. In this episode, we're going to discuss Debbie Hampton's new book on using mindfulness as a mental health tool. We're going to talk about the scientific perspective of mindfulness for a change and how it can improve brain health and overall well-being. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Please note, the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering. For those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems, please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay. Hello, it is so good to be back. And today, we're visiting with a guest, a previous guest. And that's why I'm excited to have someone return who, first off, I have to say, is one of the best social media supporters on the planet. This woman, her name is Debbie Hampton, on Twitter, now X or whatever you want to call that, and any place you are, this lady knows how to use social media and knows how to do what's necessary to give others a leg up, which I think is why the universe will be doing that for her for a long time. I wanted to bring her on and say hello, but first I want to say she's got a new book, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hold up that beautiful cover, and we're going to talk about how to use mindfulness as a mental health tool. Now, one last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Debbie is this is from a scientific perspective, which I think is really cool because we get all the woo-woo and everybody knows a lot of my friends are woo-woo and we have all the holistic sides. It's really good to get the scientific so you can understand the real pieces and where these things come from. So thank you so much for coming back. Thank you, Elaine. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So tell us, first of all, wait to hear this. How big is the book? It's 323 pages. <laughs> uh, I haven't been known for being brief, and I wasn't <laughs> in this one. But what I'm proud of is that it's 70 pages of scientific sources. And what it is a very factual look at mindfulness and how we can use it. Any person can use it, a therapist or a, a lay person in their own life as a mental health tool, not as a spiritual practice, although it can be that, and not as naked yoga. Mindfulness has gotten commercialized and it's a trendy word for people to say and to sell products. But this is a take on the science-based version of what it really does so far that the 
science shows us it does to improve your brain and your mind and even your bodily health and how you can put it to use in your daily life. I kept trying to block her, but she was persistent. When they want to go. I love the fact that it is scientific, but it does, it ties in a lot of things for the holistic community as well, because it is the claims that they make that, that are factual, that are back by the sourcing materials that you have. It's just, it's giving people who are only tied to Western medicine somewhere else to get help. And to me, anything that can help us in this day and age, especially within the mental health sector, is absolutely critical. So why this topic? Why mindfulness? I chose mindfulness because it has had such a big impact on my life. I went from being depressed and trying to end my life and doing so, I gave myself a serious brain injury. Yeah. I was in a coma for a week. When I came out of the coma, I couldn't speak. I had almost no memory. I didn't know I had two sons. I didn't know I'd gotten divorced. And it literally took years for me to rebuild my brain and my life. And although I wouldn't do it again ever in a heartbeat or wish on anyone, it was a blessing in disguise because it allowed me to build my brain and life and belief systems from scratch. The brain injury wiped all those out. And your belief systems, even your cells and your genes, your body and your brain is affected and shaped by your life. It's called neuroplasticity. Your brain changes based on the experiences that happen to you, based on your thoughts. And think about it. Most of that in our early childhood is input from other people, our parents, teachers, organizations like churches, schools. And we adopt the beliefs that we are immersed in, whether they work for us or not. And they may not. So if we have critical parents that tell us that we're not smart or that we're bad, then you're going to internalize that. And your brain actually wires believing, like to reinforce that. And that becomes your subconscious brain, your thoughts, and what you think and what you believe. And if you have any adverse childhood experiences, trauma, any kind of, I don't know, accidents or abuse or anything, and it doesn't have to be. We often think of trauma as like war or a car accident or violence. But it, if it was traumatic to your brain, 
is traumatic. It doesn't have to meet anybody else's requirements. And what that does is all those little incidents add up and they shape, they actually shape your physical brain, its form, its function, how it, its patterns, and that shapes your emotions, your beliefs about yourself and the world, and even your relationships. Think of it like a triangle with your relationships, your brain, and your mind all, and it's a fluid triangle. It Everything affects everything else. So that's what determines the brain that we have. So all my childhood experiences, and I didn't have a bad childhood. It was a very middle-class upbringing during the 60s and 70s and had very intelligent, caring parents. But as was typical of the time, they weren't very emotionally aware. So I learned how to be reactive, how to be critical of myself and how to be very negative thinking patterns. And I didn't even know to look for or be grateful for anything. I was very unaware. And I did, so when I went through some hardships, I was extremely unprepared for it. I took care of my brother that died of AIDS for two years. I had absolutely horrible divorce. It was very ugly. I was married to my childhood sweetheart for 18 years. We got married right out of college. And it just turned abusive emotionally over time as he got more powerful and I withdrew more and got more depressed. And we ended the marriage and I, I, after a breakup with somebody else and more life trauma, I decided I didn't have any coping skills. And I decided the best thing to do was to end my life because I really believed at that time that I was a detriment to my children. And a lot of people say, how could you do that to your children? But I thought I was hurting them more than I was helping them. So that's the place I got to when I woke up from the brain injury. I had, I was severely impaired. And I was of a completely different frame of mind. I didn't have all that chatter. I didn't have all those shoulds from my childhood. I didn't have that critical belief system that I needed, life needed to look like this, or I needed to look like this. In a way, the brain injury was a gift. It was the ultimate mindfulness. Mindfulness is the process of being aware of the moment and being aware of your awareness of the moment and where your mind and your brain are. And the critical point of mindfulness is 
after you are aware, then you redirect your mind. You consciously decide what is going to be in your best interest and be healthy for you. And then you guide your mind to a certain way. So being brain injured, I couldn't, I didn't recall the past. And I did, I wasn't concerned with the future. All I was concerned with was the moment. And that right there is mindfulness. So in a way, it was the ultimate lesson in mindfulness. And it taught me, my kids got taken away. They moved out of state with their dad, which was totally devastating. But also, it allowed me to concentrate on myself and to make changes that I needed to make years before. And coming out of the brain injury took literally years. And it took years of me working on myself physically. I exercised every day, literally, for three years at least. And spiritually, emotionally, I had the unique chance to rebuild my brain and my life. It was a lot of difficulty, as is a lot of learning experiences, but it was also good. At this time, when I rebuilt my brain and life, I did it consciously. And mindfulness was a big part of helping me do that. Because that's what mindfulness is. It's about living consciously and choosing where your actions, your mental thought, and your behaviors. Now, you can't choose the random thoughts that pop into your brain. That comes from your subconscious. And it comes from all those wounds and pain and fears that we talked about earlier that just absorb growing up. But this was my chance to choose. I still had the impulses to react and to think negatively, but this time I said, wait a minute, that is my brain. That's my subconscious just doing what it does, regurgitating. And your brain is all your brain is very fear-based. Yeah. And its priority is always your safety. So it's always gonna provide the fuel and the thoughts that automatically come up are gonna be fear-based. But mindfulness allows you to stop, be aware of what you're thinking and go, okay, is that serving me? Excuse me. Is that really what I wanted to believe in this case? Is that what is going to get me the best outcome that I want to have in this circumstance? And really, that's all mindfulness is. It can get very complicated, and you can follow Buddhism or loving mindfulness meditations. You can. And I would encourage people to try out many different flavors and many different philosophies and whatever 
interests them regarding Rumpus, but it doesn't have to be anything more than being aware in the moment of what you're thinking and then consciously deciding what you want to act on and what you want to believe. And over time, that actually rewires your brain and changes all those fear-based brain patterns that we you formed growing up subconsciously. And it, a lot of people, I've heard from so many people, I can't meditate. I don't, I can't be mindful. My brain is too busy. Well, that's perfect because what actually changes your brain physically and your brain patterns and the way your brain is connected is, okay, every time what actually changes it is you being aware and redirecting your brain. It doesn't matter that the old stuff comes up and that your brain is busy. What is important is that every time it does, you take a minute and you pause and are aware of what your brain is doing and then you consciously redirect it. It's that the action of redirecting that changes your brain. And I will say mindfulness has gotten a lot of hype and there's been all kinds of promises out there that it can make you do everything from lose weight to have a better sex life. And it, it can, but it's not magic. It's effort. It takes time. It takes practice. And it takes dedication. And there have been studies that show that mindfulness meditation can start changing your brain in as little as eight weeks. But to actually change your thinking patterns and your patterns of reacting can take years. And probably 15 years past my brain injury. And I will say, and like I told you earlier, I have an anxious composition. And that still comes up. I'm probably always going to be anxious. That is probably always going to be the default for my brain. But now I have the tools to realize what is happening. Pause and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not, because I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to, I'm going to reaffirm myself. I'm going to say affirmations that help calm me down. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on what I want and what I want to create and the brain I want rather than my fears. And again, it's not magic, but it is a tool that I use daily still to help calm myself. And I did have depression before I tried in my life. And it also very scientifically is proven very effective to help repattern depressive brains. But I haven't really got depressed since my attempt to take my life because 
mindfulness and the tools I've learned keep me from spiraling down. Whereas what I did before, I just made myself worse. I would get myself into more of a panic or more of a dress state, or I would just reiterate the negative stuff my brain was telling me. Now I know I don't have to believe that. And I also don't have to act on it. So the book tells you how your brain is formed, how it's naturally negative, and practical tools that you can use. Meditation is just one tool. There are lots of mindfulness tools you can use in your daily life to redirect your brain and redirect your life. I see mindfulness as really a way to take control of my life. I totally agree. And I've had people too who said, oh, I just can't meditate. Do you walk your dog? Right. Okay. Are you walking through the park? What's happening when you're, okay. If you're there with the dog, being aware that you're right there with that dog, that's the start of mindfulness. There you go. It's not, people tend to overcomplicate things that are very simplistic. I like to say trying to be mindful or trying to meditate is being mindful and is meditating because it's the act of trying that changes your brain. And even people who still do dishes, I find. That can be very, very mindful. Yeah, because it's you're doing a repetitive activity that allows you to concentrate on your brain, to, to be aware of what's happening. I forget the statistic, but it's somewhere like above 50% of the time we're not even thinking about or paying attention to what we're doing. Yeah. Your brain is very efficient. Oh, my God, if- yeah. It would take a lot of energy to concentrate on what you're doing all the time. That's why it, like driving a car, riding a bike, things that you do repetitively, it delegates that to your subconscious. When you first start driving a car, you have to pay attention to everything, but then after you've been doing it as many years as I have, you can drive somewhere and not even remember the drive over there. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the opposite of being mindful. Yeah, yeah. It's that fugue state. My my spiritual advisor used to call it not being in the driver's seat, literally. And what you're doing in your brain when you do that is you're transferring the activity or the part of your brain that's in control from your limbic system, from your subconscious brain to your frontal lobe. And your frontal lobe right behind this big forehead we have is your thinking brain, is your humanness. And what actually happens is more connections get wired between the limbic system, the amygdala, all that, the hippocampus, and your frontal lobe. 
to where now your frontal lobe can control your reactions instead of your reactions overpowering your thinking brain where all the decisions and actions it allows you to be calmer and to react from a place of control than a place of emotion yeah yeah absolutely and that to me i think that's the most important thing for part of mindfulness is it does you do become calmer over time because those new connections are doing other things when you talk about not paying not being aware of what you're doing people are being mindful people that are watching tv and knitting or crocheting or doing some other activity with their hands i know people that are just unbelievably good at what they do and they're not seemingly paying attention the brain knows what it's doing and it's the same thing it fascinates me because i'm a person who cannot type <laughs> i don't have the hand-eye coordination we found out after the brain injury i don't either yeah that's, sadly even before my car accident i was such a bad typist when i went to the first typing class in grade nine the sister who was in charge, I went to a parochial school. She came around behind me, this six-foot nun. And I don't think I was in the class even 10 minutes. And she tapped me on the shoulder. And she said, you need to go to the office. I said, what did I do? She said, no, go to the office. Have Sister Azarello put you in maths or science or something. But don't come back here. See, that wasn't very good because the more you did it, the more your brain would be able to do it. This is it. And learning so much later, that was the case. Right. Had I been able to right. practice right. on those things, I would have been very good. And later, when video games came in and I was pregnant with my little boy, I played a lot of these missile command and different video games. And I got really good which shouldn't have, based on what I was told, shouldn't have been able to happen. But anything that you practice enough or you focus on, exactly. and even those things in a certain amount, even video games, kids playing, those do create new synapses. Oh, yeah, video games yeah. have a lot of cognitive and oh my God, yeah. physical benefits. Yeah. And that brings up a good point. Neuroplasticity is incredibly amplified when you're young. The brain is a sponge and reacts to and to anything and everything in its environment. And it your brain it wires and shapes your brain. As you get older, your brain is not as neuroplastic, but it's still capable of change. And it's so much more capable if you concentrate and pay attention and want the change. And a lot of people think they equate mindfulness to meditation. But there are a lot of other mindfulness practices that are easy to do. One I do daily is breathing. Slow, like practice breathing. Actually calms your 
engages your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest system. So anytime you're feeling anxious, if you'll calm your breath, slow your breath down, and make longer exhales than inhales, that engages your calming system and disengages your fight or flight. So I practice slow breathing every day. I do meditate every day. And there are lots of different kinds of meditation. And I would encourage anybody interested to find online guides. Or you can read several books. Pimba Children, Rick Hansen are all good teachers that have free stuff online. Or you can just sit down for a minute a day and focus on your thoughts and then extend it to two minutes. And I guarantee you, you'll get better at it. Even at first, if your mind is going like popcorn. Other practices are practicing affirmations. I do that a lot also almost every day. And affirmations are things that you want to believe or you want to be true. Instead of focusing on things that are problems or things that are critical about yourself. Like I may say, I'm competent, capable, and confident. I can take control of my life and produce the life I want. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be as simple as, I can handle this, or I'm smart. Rather than think about all the subconscious messages that come up that are contrary to that. And at first, I'll honestly say, at first, it thought like it felt like I was lying to myself. But that's okay. It's just like mindfulness. It's still doing what it's reprogramming your pattern of thinking and changing your brain. So I would say stick with it because it feels a heck of a lot better than all the negative stuff. Absolutely. Let me give you an interim step. I think her name is Michelle, the lady who told me this, but we were talk- We were at an event. We were talking about affirmations and different things, and she said that for the longest time, she couldn't look in the mirror and say she was confident or she was beautiful or she was smart. And so someone told her to say, I could be a woman who is beautiful. I could be a woman who is smart. And that was her interim that took many months, as she said, but got her to the point where she became a woman who. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a way to ease you into something that doesn't feel right. Yeah, and, and sometimes, like yeah, because sometimes it can be almost more detrimental if you force yourself right. to gotcha. say things that you really don't believe. Gotcha. Yeah. Another mindfulness practice that's really easy to do anywhere, anytime, and nobody will even know you're doing it, is called ground, grounding. 
And what you do is you, and what you're actually doing is changing again, you're changing the part of your brain that's in control. And what grounding does is you pay attention to your senses. And for instance, you think of five things you can see in your immediate environment, four things you can hear, three things you can feel, one thing you can taste, and maybe one, no, I'm sorry, two things you can taste or smell or vice versa, or one thing you can taste or smell. You just pay attention to your senses and start becoming aware of what's happening there. And what that will actually do is take you out of your default mode in your brain and change it to your frontal lobe where you have to pay attention to what's happening right now rather than being scared of what's happening may happen in the future or sad about what happened in the past. And there are probably... There's a whole chapter on mindful eating, mindful showering, mindful walking, taking a yoga class, and how to meditate. If you want to do those things, there is definitely a practice that will feel good and resonate with you. And if one doesn't, that's okay. Try something else. It doesn't mean you're bad at mindfulness. It just means you hadn't found what works for you. Absolutely. That, absolutely beautiful, Debbie. And I usually ask at the end, what is one tweak or tip or tool you use daily that you can offer the audience to use as well? We're not even going to put you on the spot with that because you've just given us like 30, which is awesome. So I want everyone to know that... Debbie's book and all of Debbie's information will be in the transcript below. And we will make sure that you have all the links that are important to get a hold of Debbie and get her new book. I think it's actually going to be quite a smash hit with the scientific community as well as those who are just opening up to what else is around us beside Western medicine. Thank you so much, Elaine. I hope people will take one nugget of anything I said today and put it to good use in their own life. That's, that, that is the point of the show, is we want people to take away a nugget that at least can offer them some hope in okay. their lives. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicides and Forgiveness. I thank you so much for being here with us today. I thank you, Debbie, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for returning. We will no doubt see Debbie again sometime soon. Thanks. Bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here for another inspiring episode of Suicides and Forgiveness. We appreciate you tuning in. Please subscribe and download on your favorite service and check out SZF's YouTube channel or Facebook community. If you have the chance to leave a five-star rating or review, it'd be greatly appreciated. Please refer this to a friend you know who may benefit from the hope and inspiration from our guests. Suicides and Forgiveness was brought to you by the following sponsors. Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you rocking page one in the search results. 
Canada's keynote humorist Judy Croon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City, Judy has been involved for over a decade in the City Street Outreach Program in Toronto. Lisa Sugarman, Boston-based author, columnist, and crisis counselor with The Trevor Project, America's largest suicide and crisis support network for at-risk LGBTQ youth, storyteller with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, survivor of suicide loss, and mental health advocate. Lisa's purpose aligns with the lanes as Lisa shares content and sparks conversations to help end the stigma of suicide and connect people with the support and hope they deserve. Do you have a story to share? Do you know someone you think would be a great guest? Please go to szf42.com. And for our American listeners, that's szf42.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again.